Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined, as always, by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We recorded the podcast exceptionally on Thursday afternoon this week, which meant that, uh, unfortunately, we're not able to take account of the news yesterday about the new coronavirus variant, which had quite a striking impact on market performance on Friday, with the FTSE all share down 3.5% and bond yields also coming down. We will be returning to that topic next week, but most of the comments about the individual trust this week still, of course, apply. Let's kick off by talking about the latest corporate news. Simon, we're going to start with Crispel Amber Fund, ticker CRS. Tell us what's been going on there. Well, this week we've learned that shareholders in Crystal Amber Fund have voted against the fund's continuation at the annual general meeting. Just under 44 million shares were voted against continuation, and that represented 49% of the shares voted, or around about 40% of the share capital. Now, this wasn't the greatest surprise. Back in June, Crystal Amber had announced that Sabre Capital, which owns 26% of the fund, had indicated it would not support continuation. Uh, And why was that crucial? Well, the resolution required 75% of shares voted in favour to pass. So given that they had that 26% shareholding, it was clear at that stage that Crystal Amber had a problem. The team behind Crystal Amber uh, are clearly not entirely delighted with this. And they noted in the announcement that Sabre Capital, along with another US hedge fund, had actually sold short shares in Delarue, which is the largest holding in the vehicle, and Allied Mines as well. And they also noted, Chris Lambert also noted, that excluding those two shareholders, 75% of the remaining shareholders voted in favour of the continuation. Be that as it may, it has failed its continuation vote, and the intention now is to provide shareholders with specific proposals uh, which are expected to centre around a continued realisation of assets, uh, but at the same time increasing capital returns to shareholders. But it's worth noting this is a highly specialist fund. It sits in the UK small cap sector. It's basically an aim-traded activist fund, funnily enough, uh, which is focused on UK mid and small caps. It's run by a gentleman called Richard Bernstein and a highly, highly concentrated portfolio. So in fact, five strategic holdings, including Delarue and Allied Mines, account for 89% of the NAV. And there's some big stakes in these companies. So it's a relatively small trust. So it sounds like the activists have become victims of activists themselves, in in a sense. This uh, hedge fund has basically blocked it from continuation. Would that be fair to summarise it that way? Yes, I think that's probably spot on, actually. And you're right, it has traded out at quite a wide discount. So in the previous 12 months, it's been on a 22% discount. That has narrowed in now, perhaps unsurprisingly, given that there's uh, almost certainly likely to be some kind of liquidity event uh, in the not-too-distant future. So we're seeing it on discount of about 13% at the moment. But when you do hold large stakes in relatively small companies, there's always the issue of you know how liquid uh, are those stakes likely to be and what will be the effect uh, of a sale of those stakes on the actual worth. So we won't know for a while exactly what uh, the outcome of that is going to be, but it does seem uh, particularly aggressive to have someone come on your share register and then go short of the shares that are in the portfolio. That does seem rather an aggressive approach, it has to be said. So not a way to win friends and minds anyway. Moving on then, let's talk about uh, EP Global Opportunities, uh, ticker EPG. They've had some more detail about the proposals uh, for what they're proposing to do with this trust, which is certainly, um, I think, rather different from the norm in these kind of cases. Yeah, that's right. And and obviously, we talked about this one a number of weeks ago when the the proposals first came up. But now we're starting to get a a few more details. So the circular was published this week. And as we'd already known that the the proposal is to become self-managed, Sandy Nairn, who's the present manager, will be appointed an executive director, but also take day-to-day responsibility for the investment management. In addition to that, third-party managers will be used and also a wider asset range will be considered. And as part of that, up to 30% of investments can be made in private investments. And those will be focused on boutique private capital managers. So all these changes are subject to FCA approval, and that could take up to six months. So there will be a little bit of time before this all comes to pass. Um, Assuming that it does, the name will change from EP Global Opportunities to the Global Opportunities Trust, 
And they also gave us a few more details around the tender offer. So there will be a 20% tender offer at a 2% discount to NAV, less costs. And again, that's contingent on the approval of the new investment objective and policy. And that's expected to take place in late January, early February. Um, but again, the guidance around the shape of the initial portfolio, probably about 40 to 60% in global equities. Specialist funds will account for around about 10%. Private capital, the same kind of level. There possibly will be a little bit in bonds, but cash between 20 and 30%. But this is all subject to shareholder approval and there will be a general meeting on the 17th of December. Yes, yeah, so that's a very interesting development. It's quite complicated for a start. And secondly, it's unusual, I think, for a trust that uh, it effectively is becoming a sort of self-managed trust, I suppose you could say. And it's a very interesting portfolio. We said that um, you have to be different to succeed these days from other trusts out there. And I think this one would look a little bit different from some of the other trusts out there. Uh, but it's a very conservative portfolio. And I think I mentioned before, um, Sandy Nan is a, a longstanding uh, co-author of mine. And uh, he's just published his book about the end of the everything bubble. And basically, he is very negative. And so I guess one factor in determining whether this will go through or not, and the shareholders approve, is whether or not the shareholders think there's a place for another defensively oriented fund, at least defensively oriented at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the key to this is, as you say, it's it's going to be Sandy's outlook and view on the world, uh, on the, the prospects for in particularly global equities at the moment. And it's whether the shareholder base adheres to that view, subscribes to that view and sees a, a place for that kind of vehicle within their investments. And just in terms of what's happening to the share price, I mean, it's obviously the recent performance has been pretty uh, poor compared to its its peer group because value star been so out of favour. Uh, is anything happening on the discount front? The discount's about 10% or so at the moment, and that compares with an average of 8% over the previous 12 months. So if anything, it's gone a little bit wider. And it's certainly wider than the average for the peer group. It's in the global equities peer group. Um, clearly, there's some very big funds in that. But even on a simple average basis, so not factoring in market cap size, the average discount's about 4%. So EP Global Ops certainly is on the wider side in terms of discount. Yes, well, I guess there's probably a bit of a marketing job to be done there if that's going to go through to make sure that uh, the shareholders understand exactly what's being offered and uh, why it might be appropriate to the current market conditions. So that's one to watch over the next few weeks. Let's move on and talk about Scottish Oriental Smaller Companies, ticker SST. Tell us what they've said this week. Yeah, so this was a, an interesting development. Basically, they came out and announced that they wish to adopt a conditional performance-related five-yearly tender offer. And this followed a process whereby the board had actually given active consideration to conducting a search to replace the existing investment manager. So just to be very clear about this, they were just considering going down that route. And that was a reflection of performance issues. However, uh, performance of late had improved and that encouraged the board. So they thought that this was perhaps the better way to go, the idea of a conditional performance-related tender offer. That will be up to 25% of the share capital at a 2% discount to NAV less costs. And it'll be triggered if over a five-year period from the 1st of September this year, so 2021, to a period for every five years thereafter, the NAV total return is behind the MSCI All Country Asia X Japan Small Cap Index. Now, clearly, that will be subject to shareholder approval at that particular time. But in addition to that, the board have made noises that they remain committed to ensure the discount doesn't go too wide. And certainly, they've bought back quite a few shares. About 7% of the share capital has been bought back so far this year. So this trust, as I recall, is managed by First State Investments, who are based in Edinburgh. So the management team basically has been given what looks like a kind of second life here. Is that right? Or a ninth life? Or I don't know what you would call it. But uh, they've been given a chance to, uh, instead of perhaps having a strategic review and being either wound up or handed over to another manager, they seem to have got uh, a new lease of life. Would that be a fair analysis of that? Yeah, I mean, this this investment trust has always been run with a kind of more value-orientated investment approach going back to the predecessors. So the, the existing manager, uh, Vinay Agarwal, is actually based in Singapore, but he has very much that same approach. And it's a very different portfolio. It's over 40% is in India, almost 20% in Indonesia, only 10% in China. So that looks quite different from most equity Asian portfolios at the moment. But performance hasn't been particularly good of late. Over the longer term, there's certainly been periods when Scottish Oriental smaller companies perform very strongly. And I remember one of Vinny's predecessors describing the investment approach as growth at a Scottish price. 
and that was very much that that idea of a, a value approach. But certainly, it's been uh, more of a struggle of late. But as the board acknowledged just more recently, performance has picked up, and clearly being overweight India in this particular calendar year has certainly uh, been helpful in that regard. But you know, this is all subject to shareholder approval, clearly. But the actual mechanism to have a tender offer, conditional tender offer, triggered by a period of underperformance. It is becoming increasingly common. I think we've talked about a couple of instances, comparable instances, relatively recently, including um, the Dragon Trust, part of the Aberdeen stable. So this seems the way that many of these funds are going. Okay, well, let's move on and then talk about um, a small development at uh, Third Point Investors, ticker TPOU, another long-running saga this one is turning into. I think the news that's out this week is not a total surprise, given what you said uh, last week about this or the week before, Simon. Yes, that's right. This is a long-running saga now, but basically, I think when we talked about it a week or two before, it was the result of the first exchange facility that allows investors, um, or certainly those that have over uh, $10 million worth in third-point investors, to flip into the equivalent open-ended or master fund. Initially, $10.1 million had elected to go down this route, and that was to be done at a 7.5% discount. But actually, they've had a, a change of heart so uh, that particular one shareholder has actually now withdrawn its application. So it remains to be seen whether they will just bide their time and, and uh, effectively elect as part of the 2022 exchange facility, which will be at a 2% discount to NAV, as opposed to the 7.5% discount that was the case for the 2021 facility. Yeah, so unless the share price really kind of craters or something, that looks like a fairly sensible decision on whoever's part that was. We don't know who it was. This 10.1 million shareholder wasn't me. I'm afraid to say I can't I can't claim it was me. Before we move on to fundraising, I want to quickly just mention on the Moneymakers Circle this week, we've got a profile of Scottish Mortgage. After the ups and downs of this year, we've got an in-depth profile of Scottish Mortgage and looking ahead to the uh, obviously retirement of James Anderson and what might happen after that. And I've also done a review, the first ever review of the uh, Moneymakers Income Portfolio. This is a portfolio I put together to see uh, what kind of returns you would have made by investing in uh, a, a broadly diversified portfolio of income generating trusts. And uh, well, if you want to find out the results, that have been quite interesting, I think. I've been quite pleased with them. You can uh, join us at Moneymakers in the Moneymakers Circle. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. And we're going to kick off with Foresight Sustainable Forestry, ticker FSF, which I'm sure has been trumpeting its uh, ESG credentials. But uh, tell us, Simon, what was the outcome of this one? Well, they got across the line. It was a successful IPO. They raised £130 million, and that was the minimum gross proceeds that they said that they could proceed on. Um, just to remind people, they were looking to get £200 million. That was the target. So obviously in a little bit less than that. Uh, but the point is they're up and running. This will be invested in UK forestry, commercial forestry, and they had a £138 million seed portfolio lined up. So one would suspect that they will get invested pretty quickly. They're targeting an NAV total return of 5% per annum over a rolling five-year period. And uh, I think one of the other kind of key details that at launch, or certainly at the attention to float stage, that Foresight Inheritance Tax Fund, and this is obviously going to be managed by Foresight, uh, had uh, were lined up as a seed investor up to 30% of the initial launch. So that obviously helped to get that one away. And Foresight, are, they are the same people who manage the, the solar fund. That's right. And also JLEN that we're going to come on and talk about later in this pod. Very good. OK, so let's talk about uh, Greencoat UK Wind, ticker UKW, one of the longest standing uh, renewable energy trusts. How did their issue go this week? Very well, I think is the answer to that. They raised £450 million. That was an oversubscribed equity issue. And in fact, the maximum size was increased from um, just short of £400 million. And the board were happy to take into account the amount drawn down at that particular moment in time on their debt facility. They've also got some uh, new investments lined up. So a £250 million investment in the Burbo Bank Extension Offshore Wind Farm. And they'll also use to make a repayment on their debt facility as well. But certainly uh, good news. I mean, it's all subject to shareholder approval, but those new shares will start trading on Monday. And they've been issued at a price of 132p. That represents a 4% premium to the NAV at the end of September. Yes, well, that's good news because that one is in the uh, Moneymakers Income portfolio as it happens. 
the shares have come in a little bit in anticipation of the issue, I think. So hopefully they will bounce back again. Let's move on and talk about Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF. We mentioned them last week. How did their little issue go? Yeah, they raised £14 million, so just over 10 million new shares will be issued. They just started trading at the end of the week, actually, at a price of 139.7p, and that represented a 1.5% premium to the NAV as at the close of business on the 22nd of November. Okay, uh, that's well done for them. And then let's talk about uh, Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI and TLEP. What have they had to say this week? Yeah, so obviously we were aware that they were looking to float. They just provided some more details. The prospectus has now been published. They're looking to raise up to gross proceeds of $335 million. The IPO will close on the 9th of December. And assuming that it's successful, the, the shares will begin trading on the 14th of December. But just to remind people, this fund will be invested in what they describe as a diversified portfolio of unlisted sustainable energy infrastructure assets in fast-growing emerging economies in Asia. Right. So that's another interesting one. So that's one IPO which is uh, due to happen. And the IPO we've already mentioned, Foresight, has uh, got away. So uh, how many IPOs are we up to now this year? It has sort of picked up a little bit towards the end of the year. Yeah, no, it has. I'm going to make a guess because I haven't got the exact number, but I think it feels about 11 or 12 now, actually. So it's turning into to a pretty good year for IPOs. Yeah, it's been a very good market for fundraising all round. So let's move on and talk about some results now. Let's kick off with uh, Caledonia Investments, ticker CLDN, which is, as I think listeners know, is a very, very long-standing uh, investment trust. Started off as a family investment trust and has since expanded. That's right. And these were interim results for the six months to the end of September. A decent set of return, actually. So NAV total return came in at just over 16%. That compared with a rise of 8% for the FTSE All Share in that time. But actually, in share price terms, it was even stronger, actually. They were up 32%. But the way that Caledonia Investments is organised, it's three distinct pools, a quoted equity pool, a private capital pool, and they also have a funds pool as well. And all three were in positive territory. Uh, private capital was up over 20%, and actually the funds pool was up 24%. So that certainly worked well for them. The private capital pool benefited from the sale of Deep Sea Electronics, which they had proceeds of over £240 million from. And actually, they've announced a further disposal, which has happened earlier this month in November. And there are estimated proceeds of £136 million from that particular sale. It's a, a biotech company. So as a result of those disposals, and this is you know, quite a decent amount of cash at the moment, probably about 11% or so, of net assets, in addition to which they've, they've got an undrawn facility as well. So certainly quite a bit of dry powder on their balance sheet. But uh, probably the other key takeaway of this is that Will Wyatt, who's been uh, the chief executive of Caledonia Investments now for quite a few years, is actually going to retire after the AGM in July next year. And Matthew Masters, who again is a long-standing member of the investment team at Caledonia, he will replace him. Uh, he will succeed him. Matt Masters is currently the head of Quoted Equity, and uh, he will jump into the hot seat next year. It's the Kayser family originally started this, the shipping dynasty, I recall. And uh, this one has performed very well, but it's one of these um, originally family trusts, which, uh, you know, I've always thought they kind of traded at a reasonably big discount, 20% or so. But... Um, the family seems quite happy with that, or the, or the largest shareholders seem happy with that. Uh, do you think that's going to change? I mean, obviously, the share price performance has been very good recently. Yeah, I mean, as noted, it was a very strong period of performance. I mean, I've got the discount on about 19% or so at the moment. That compares to an average of 22% over the previous 12 months. And they do have a buyback program. So they do buy back shares on a kind of opportunistic basis. But I think one of the limitations there is the fact that the family has a very large state, there's a family trust, and then there's uh, additional shareholdings on top of that. So they're limited by how many shares they can actually buy back. But uh, that said, I think they are minded to keep the discount under control. That would certainly what the, the, the buyback program would suggest. But you're right, it, it does invariably trade on a not insignificant discount. The ISC has this one in the flexible investment sector. Who should one be comparing this one to if one's uh, wanting to have a look at it? It's a good question because, as I said, there are three distinct pots within the, the portfolio. So a kind of a global equities pot, a private capital pot, which is effectively UK-based businesses, though quite international in favour, 
And then there's this funds pool, and there's a lot of US and Asian and a lot of private equity names in there as well, actually. So it is certainly a, a global orientated vehicle. I mean, there's arguments you could compare them against some global funds, you could compare them against some private uh, equity vehicles. But actually, as you say, it, it's in the flexible investment. So I think to compare them with other family offices probably makes quite a degree of sense. So the obvious names in that space would be Rick Capital Partners, where obviously Lord Rothschild and his family have a significant stake, uh, and also Hansa Investment Company, where the Salomon family own a lot of the uh, the shares. In fact, they have a controlling interest in that particular investment trust. Yes, and that one trades on a slightly bigger discount, I think, while RIT is uh, pretty close to a premium, I think, isn't it? So there's quite a wide range of ratings there. No, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Ritcap probably, as you say, trading around NAV at the moment, whereas Hansa, the two share classes, but 34 35% discount is, is kind of where they are at the moment. Well, let's talk about them because they also had some interim results out this week and they are directly comparable to Caledonia, I guess. It's six months to 30th September. How did they do? With, as I said, the two share classes, but the NAV total return was up just short of 9%. Uh, and that was kind of broadly in line with the MSCI All Country World Index. In share price terms, uh, they were up 13% and 12% respectively. And again, it's this idea that there are different parts of this particular portfolio. There's a chap called Alex Lechfield who's responsible for this. And the positive bits uh, during this period, the, the kind of core regional element that was up 10%. They've got a thematic pot, which was up about 5%. But probably one of the key holdings is that they've got a strategic stake in Ocean Wilson Holdings, which is a, a listed company and has exposure to a, a Brazilian business called Wilson Sons. And that investment was up 21% in the period. So that's certainly benefited performance. Okay, we'll move on and talk about JP Morgan Elect Managed Growth Trust, ticker JPE. They've had some annual results. That's right. Annual results for the year ended 31st of August. In that time, the NAV total return was up just short of 34%, and that compared to a rise of 27% for the benchmark, which is 50% uh, the FTSE All Share and 50% FTSE World X UK. In share price terms, it was even better, actually. Uh, share price total return up just short of 40%. So a decent set of results. And it's worth saying, actually, so JP Morgan Elect, I'm talking about the managed growth shares, and we'll come on to talk about the income leg in a minute. But it has three distinct share classes, so managed growth, managed income, and managed cash. And shareholders can switch between the different share classes on a quarterly basis, should they wish. Um, and in theory, at least, it should be reasonably tax-efficient but in terms of managed growth, they did do very well. It's worth noting it's a portfolio invested in investment trusts and open-ended funds managed principally by JP Morgan Asset Management. So at the end of this period, at the end of August, 34% were invested in non-JP Morgan funds. But what drove performance? Well, it was holdings in investment trusts, actually, such as BlackRock, smaller companies, Fidelity Special Values, Lowland, Mercantile, and Temple Bar. The detractors in the period were JP Morgan China Growth and Income, Finsbury Growth and Income and Templeton Emerging Markets, all investment trusts that we've talked about before. So I guess the year end, the timing of the year from August to August, that certainly helped them in terms of some narrowing of discounts in the investment trust that they own. OK, well, we'll talk about JP Morgan Elect Managed Income in a moment. Let's move on and talk about uh, Personal Assets Trust, ticker PAT, very well-known investment trust. Probably be one could argue one of the most successful investment trusts of the past 10, 20 years. What have their interims been like? So these were interim results for the six months to the end of October, uh, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 5.9%. That was ahead of the FTSE All Share in that time, which was up 5.4%. In share price terms, broadly similar, actually up about 5, 5.5%. And it's worth noting they pursue a, uh, and have done for many years a zero discount policy. So invariably, the share price and the NAV are very closely correlated. And on that zero discount policy, it's worth noting that they issued new shares worth £107 million in that period. But the manager, Sebastian Lyon, has been responsible for this one for a number of years. And there's certainly more than a note of caution in the investment manager's report. And that's reflected in the setup of the portfolio. So 59% was kind of deemed to be offering liquidity at the end of October. And just to break that down, that included US tips, about 30%. Uh, which are inflation-protected treasuries. UK treasuries were about 17%, gold bullion about 8%. So this is all kind of deemed to be liquidity. The balance is invested in equities, but the types of companies that they go for is what they describe as durable, profitable companies that offer growth and pricing power. So, you know, what are the names in the frame? Well, it's, it's Microsoft, Alphabet, American Express, Nestle, 
and so on and so forth. So it's a very concentrated equity portfolio at the moment. Probably it's between about 15 and 20 holdings. And in fact, they made a couple of disposals during this six-month period. So they sold Berkshire half away. A few interesting comments in the investment manager's report on the reasons why they decided to walk away from Warren Buffett's vehicle. And also they sold Philip Morris International as well. And that represents the kind of the end of personal assets uh, investment in tobacco companies. But some very interesting comments from Sebastian in terms of what he believes the risk of uh, of higher inflation is at the moment, and also why he's uh, quite happy that the vehicle's got so much uh, in liquidity. And the liquidity is is designed to offer both downside protection and as and when the opportunity arises, the ability to increase that equity exposure. So standing poised, waiting for a market sell-off, basically. Yeah, so Sebastian and his team, they did increase the equity weighting, I think, last year after the pandemic, which is, uh, for them, quite an unusual move, has been recently. They have been very defensively positioned, and uh, it's some interesting developments. And always interesting reading Sebastian's commentary, though he's a very thoughtful observer and uh, explains things very clearly. And uh, it's one that's proved very popular with with a lot of investors. I, I guess, in a way, they kind of invented this model of the zero discount policy, allowing them to continue to grow substantially. And it's become a very big animal now, has it not, uh, uh, PAT? It has, yeah. I mean, uh, the growth on it has been considerable. As I mentioned, over £100 million of new shares issued during that period. I mean, they've got a market cap of about £1.7 billion at the moment. And that's obviously substantial higher than would have been the case, well, you know, 10 years earlier. Yeah, well, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Ian Rushbrook took over this portfolio in uh, 1990, I think it was, and uh, it was just a few million, basically, at that point. So it has been an extraordinary success in terms of growing that trust. And once the change in the rules came in at the end of the 1990s that uh, uh, allowed trust to effectively uh, buy back shares and maintain a zero discount policy, that uh, it's really worked very well for them. Very interesting. Well worth reading. Let's move on to some other results then. We've got BMO Capital and Income, ticker BCI. They've had their annual results for the year to the 30th of September. That's right. And a strong set of results. NAV total return up 38%. That compares to a rise of 28% for the FTSE All Share, so significant outperformance. Share price total return 35.5%, but a decent set of results. Uh, Julian Kane at BMO has been responsible for this one for a long time, actually. And it's quite a different portfolio from the ones that you normally find in the kind of UK equity income space, which is where this one sits. I mean, certainly when you look at the top 10 holdings, I mean, the largest holding is an outfit called OSB Group, which is a, a mid cap bank, Intermediate Capital, again, a very large holding and other names such as Secure Income REIT and Vistry Group. So quite different names to see in the top 10. But obviously the earnings and the dividends important part of the story. Uh, and the total dividend was actually increased in the year by uh, just under 1% to 11.6p. And that represented the 28th consecutive year of increased dividend payments. Earnings per share were up 27% to 10.56p. So that, in other words, the dividend wasn't covered, but the lack of cover was less than it would have been a, a year ago and revenue reserves were used to cover that shortfall. Right. So this one, as you say, sits in the UK equity income sector, trades around par, does it? What's the story there? So it's on about a 2% discount or so at the moment. It's averaged about a 1% discount over the previous 12 months, though I don't have the information immediately in front of me. But I suspect there's quite a large holding in BMO or some of the FNC legacy savings plans. And uh, it's probably got a lower profile than some of its UK equity income peers, but it's got a market cap of about £350 million or so and offers a yield of 3.6%. Very good. Well, let's compare that then to Edinburgh Investment Trust, ticker EDIN. This is one of the uh, UK equity income trusts that uh, changed its manager not so long ago. What have the results been for them? So these were interim results for the six months at the end of September, in which time uh, they also outperformed actually. It was an NAV total return just short of 10%. That compared with an 8% rise for the FTSE All Share. Share price total return terms, not quite as good, actually, up 4.4%. And that reflected that the discount widened out in this particular period. Uh, but what worked for the manager, it's James Dupper of Majady Asset Management. Uh, well, they had a holding of William Morrison Supermarkets, which was subject to a takeover bid. But also Ashton and Greggs worked well for them. And Gearing was positive as well. But uh, in terms of where they are in terms of uh, dividends of revenue per share, the revenue per share came in at 13.77p, and that was up 39% on the same period last year, which just shows how the marketplace has changed in the UK, at least, uh, for dividend payments. 
and their first interim dividend will be 6p that that's paid uh, in late November. But, you know, James is very positive on the outlook for UK equities. He made the point that the, the portfolio is tilted to those high quality companies with pricing power. But he thinks there is a value opportunity in the in the UK at the moment. He still thinks valuations are pretty depressed and gearings at 8% at the end of September. Yeah, so that's interesting too, because I mean, Edinburgh Investment is one of the old Mark Barnett trusts, as I recall. And uh, I mean, it and Temple Bar, they both changed their manager last year, uh, but uh, they're still sitting on pretty wide discounts, aren't they, in the sector as a whole? So obviously, they haven't yet uh, convinced the market that they've got the answer in this particular market environment. No, I think that's right. I mean, as I mentioned, the discount widened out in the period for Edinburgh Investment Trust. I've probably got them on about a 7% discount or so at the moment. To be perfectly honest, I think for, for a number of managers taking on new investment trusts over the last two years, it's been a difficult period to go out and market those investment trusts and tell your story. And this will be true of Temple Bar as well. Uh, and for very obvious reasons, it's quite difficult to go and see people. It has been difficult to see people over the last couple of years. I think that aside, in the case of Edinburgh, and this will be true of Temple Bar as well, because they decided to rebase their dividends because they wanted to move to a more covered dividend status, then that's probably acted as a bit of a headwind as well. But ultimately, if you can demonstrate that you can outperform, that you can beat the index consistently, then then people will start to take note of you. So that's the challenge for both those investment trusts. It tends to take a period of time as well, doesn't it, for the market to be convinced that uh, the new regime is working. Let's move on and talk about JP Morgan Elect Managed Income, which is another leg of the trust we mentioned earlier. Tell us about their annual results and how they compared to uh, the managed growth portfolio. Yeah, so a good set of results for managed income as well, actually. This is annual results to the end of August. The NAV total return was up just short of 34%. That compared with a rise of uh, just short of 27% for the benchmark. So decent outperformance. And that was particularly true for the share price total return as well. That came in at 37.7%. So unlike the managed growth leg of JP Morgan Elect, this managed income actually investing companies directly. So the key performers in the period uh, included companies such as Reach, Future, and OSB, uh, the, the aforementioned OSB, uh, obviously some detractors as well, so Dunelm and Polymetal as well. But in, in general, the larger sector positions uh, were in banks and general retail and home construction, so one suspects they probably benefited from uh, that kind of reopening trade that we saw at the start of 2021. Dividends came in at 4.75p, that was up 1.1% year on year. And the portfolio gearing stood at 5% at the end of August. But John Baker and uh, Katan Patel are responsible for the portfolio of this one. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about uh, Montanara UK Smaller Companies, uh, ticker MTU. They've had some interims. That's right, interim results for the six months to the end of September. And again, uh, another instance of outperformance. This was NAV total return up over 18%, 18.2 to be more precise, and that compared to a rise of 9.2% for the NSCI index. In share price terms, not quite as good, actually, up 15.3% as the discount just widened out a little bit. But, you know, Charlie Montanaro, a very experienced manager. It's a relatively concentrated portfolio, particularly in the small cap sector, about 50, 53 holdings or so at the moment. And the emphasis here very much remaining on uh, what they describe as high quality growth companies, smaller growth companies uh, that they try to invest in at reasonable valuations. And this one, as I think uh, we mentioned before, is one where Charles Montanaro stepped back for a period and then uh, the performance suffered a little bit and then he came back and took the helm again. He's a very interesting guy. He likes to spend time in the jungle doing some anthropological research and meeting native tribes and so on. Very interesting, uh, very interesting man. And that one is trading pretty well for a smaller company's trust, isn't it? It is absolutely, yeah. It's trading on a, about a 1% discount or so, and that compares with an average discount of less than 3% over the previous 12 months. So it is one of the higher rated UK smaller companies, investment trusts. Talking of which, then let's talk about Odyssean Investment Trust, ticker OIT. They've had some interim results for the same period. And how did they do? Yep. So again, another positive set of results. NAV total return up 13.5%. And that compares to a rise of 9.1% for the NSCI X Investment Trust plus AIM total return index, so just a slightly different index from the one that Montanaro use. Um, but uh, a very concentrated portfolio. Talk about Charlie Montanaro's 50 or so holdings. Well, Edition, they've got about 17 or they had 17 holdings at the end of September. Uh, so everyone counts really. And in that particular six month period, they had positive 
contribution from holdings such as Vectura, Flowtech, Elementis, Kemring and Spire. In fact, Vectura and Spire actually received takeover bids in the same day in May, uh, which obviously helped returns. Clenogen was the only significant detractor in the period and the investment team, so Stuart Widdison and Ed Wilczowski still believe there's um, quite a lot to go for with that particular company. But the portfolio um, moved around a little bit. There were just two full exits in the period uh, and two new positions, including Dialyte as well. Uh, And it's worth noting that they were on average 93% invested across the period. So they had a little bit of cash as well. But uh, catching up with Stuart recently, he's very positive on the prospects uh, for the portfolio, particularly on a three year plus view. Okay, well, we've got a lot of results to get through, so we're going to race on here. Um, Let's talk about Aberdeen Japan next, ticker AJIT. They've had half-year results to the 30th of September. A lot of these results are for the companies reporting for the end of September. What's their story? So they were up 10.1% in NAV total return terms. That represented an outperformance of their benchmark, was up 6.4%. In share price terms, it was even stronger, actually up 12.1%. So as you might imagine, quite a lot of chat about some of the positive contributions from some of their key holdings. But I mean, essentially, the focus here is on what they describe as well-run businesses that are leaders in their particular segment. So I mean, clearly, they have benefited from a general pickup in uh, the Japanese market. Okay, we'll move on to Aberdeen New India, ticker ANII. We mentioned India before as having performed quite well for another trust. How did this particular country-specific trust do? So these were interim results to the end of September. They actually underperformed in that time, but they were up 19% NAV total return. Uh, The MSCI India was up 23.4%. In share price terms, actually, the the underperformance wasn't quite so bad. They just came in at just under... 22%. 22%. But the bulk of the underperformance occurred earlier in the period, and that was effectively steel companies in particular had done well at that stage on the back of favourable economic news, uh, and Aberdeen New India does not hold those steel companies. They also have a significant weight into financials, uh, and they also lag some of their higher growth peers. So again, this is in common with a number of the Aberdeen mandates. There's, a, there's an emphasis on what they describe as quality names, and uh, certainly they saw some good returns from some of the, the property developers in that time. Okay, let's talk about so a couple of European trusts next. Let's start off with Bailey Gifford European Growth, ticker BGEU. They've had some annual results for the year to the 30th of September. Yeah, and uh, they outperformed, but only just actually. The NAV total return was up 24%. That compared with a rise of 23% for the FTSE Europe X UK index. Share price terms a little bit better, actually up 25%. But it's worth noting, actually, you might look at that and think that this was some kind of index tracker or a kind of index plus type mandate, which it, it really isn't. It's quite a distinct portfolio. So the fact that its returns were uh, not too different from the index, I think, is a bit of a red herring. I mean, certainly if you look at the portfolio, uh, as you would probably expect from a number of the Bailey Gifford mandates, there's quite an emphasis on, on growth in general uh, and quite a few tech companies as well. They've also got some holdings in some unlisted companies, and that accounted for about 4.5% of the total assets at the end of September. And in fact, the board of this one are looking for shareholder approval to increase the permitted investment in unlisted investments from 10% to 20% of assets. So we'll see if that approval is forthcoming. So this is a trust that Bailey Gifford took over from memory a couple of years ago, something like that, 18 months or a couple of years ago. So how have they done since then? In general terms, have they made a, a bit of a splash in the sector? So they took over in November 2019, so two years ago. So your memory is spot on. And in terms of their performance, uh, (laughs) I don't have the numbers from that moment two years ago, but I can tell you over the last year, they're kind of broadly uh, middle of the pack. I mean, they've outperformed the FTSE Europe, but actually names such as BlackRock Greater Europe have done better over the previous 12 months. They're probably the strongest performer in that particular time. Yes, I think the main impact has been has been a bit of a re-rating, hasn't there? That has helped shareholders' returns over that period. Let's move on to talk about JP Morgan European. This time, it's only interim results for the six months to 30th September. That's ticker JETG and JETI. So to cover those numbers off, so JETG, the growth leg, the NAV total return was up 10.2%. And that represented outperformance. The MSCI Europe X UK was up 8.2%. Uh, and in share price terms, it did a little bit better, actually up 11.2. Jet I, that underperformed uh, a little bit. They were up 7.4% and their share price total return was up 7.5%. Again, we talked about this one uh, not that many weeks ago, that there are proposals to merge the two share classes, the growth share class and the income share class. 
that's expected to happen in January or February next year. And actually the growth leg is the ongoing vehicle and then they're going to um, put an enhanced dividend policy uh, on top of it. So pay shareholders back 4% uh, of NAV a year as a dividend. But in that period, uh, obviously JetG did well and their performance was assisted by a number of healthcare holdings, including Novo Nordst and also some holdings in ASM, International, Capgemini and CISA. Okay, now we can switch to emerging markets and uh, Templeton Emerging Markets. I suppose you'd say the oldest surviving emerging markets trust. Uh, we lost Genesis, of course, to Fidelity. Uh, ticker TEM. And they've had some interim results too for the same period we're talking about to 30th September. That's right. And NAV total return was actually down 7.5% in that period. And that compared with a decline of 1% for the MSCI emerging markets. So in other words, they did underperform. Um, a little bit worse in share price terms as well. Share price total return down 9.8%. So what was the story here? Well, there were kind of detractors from their holdings in China and Hong Kong and South Korea uh, and South Africa. Russia was the main positive. So if you look at what were the best contributors in the period, it was invariably uh, holdings in Russia and or India. So the leading detractors were Alibaba, Samsung Electronics, Naspers and, and Tencent. So, you know, a tougher period of performance for the team at Franklin Templeton. But they're actually changing the uh, the management fee as well. So with uh, effect from the 1st of July next year, there'll be an extra tier put in effectively for assets over, over 2 billion. Uh, and they'll only be paying 0.5% on management fees. And between 1 and 2 billion, it drops to 0.75%. This is probably a little uh, undiplomatic to say uh, how does the performance of the Templeton Emerging Markets compare to Mobius Investment Trust, which is a very different vehicle, of course, a uh, different type of investment trust, much more concentrated and so on. But uh, Mark Mobius was, of course, the manager of Templeton Emerging Markets for many years. And I think he's doing rather better, isn't he, recently? Mobius Investment Trust has performed very well over the last year. So in NAV terms over the last 12 months, it's up about 40%. And that's reflected in the three-year numbers as well. So in that three-year NAV total return uh, numbers. Mobius is up 56%, and that compares to a rise of 43% for Templeton Emerging Markets. Okay, so we'll move on and talk about Utilico Emerging Markets. UEM is the ticker there. And they've also had interim results, which I guess we can more or less compare with uh, Templeton's performance. That's right. And they've actually outperformed. So NAV total return up 11%. That compares to a 1% decline for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Uh, the share price total returns up 13% almost anyway, as the discount narrowed in. But obviously a very different portfolio, uh, this one. It's a specialist in emerging markets play, really investing in infrastructure names, utility and what they describe as related sectors as well. So quite a different vehicle, but a strong period over this six month time. Okay, now let's talk about two or three or more even specialist trusts. We'll start with uh, Augmentum Fintech, ticker AUGM, which has not been in the market that long, but is uh, obviously in the fintech sector, which uh, uh, one imagines has done pretty well. So how has their performance been? Yeah, it was a positive set of results, actually. So these are six months to the end of September. The NAV was up 9% in that time. But again, it's a relatively concentrated portfolio of, of private companies. So it's really the information that you're getting uh, from those private companies. So Interactive Investor, which has been in the media quite a bit recently, that's, I think, the largest holding, just about 16% or so of the portfolio. Uh, and that's certainly seen very strong year-on-year -year revenue growth. I think it was up 19% in the first half of 2021. Uh, they've got another holding called Onfido. Uh, that was up 100% year-on-year revenue growth for that first half period. So that's obviously quite encouraging for shareholders. And in fact, uh, Sopa, another large holding, 7% of the portfolio, has announced a £220 million funding round led by SoftBank. And in fact, Augmentum Fintech is participating in that. So a lot of activity at the underlying portfolio level. Augmentum raised some cash back in July, raised £55 million, and they've still got about £44 million, or they did at the end of September. Uh, but they made the point that the pipeline of investment opportunities significantly exceeds available cash. And this one, uh, I suppose it can't really be compared with the big tech trusts, but it does still trade on a premium. So it's uh, obviously uh, still very popular in the market. Yeah, and I think that's right. And I think, as I say, that there's obviously been quite a lot of talk about interactive investor and what might happen to that particular company. Uh, and I suspect the premium that Augmentum Fintech uh, trades on at the moment to a, a greater or lesser degree reflects what people suspect might happen with interactive investor. Yes, indeed. I mean, the media has been speculating that... Uh, there's been discussion with Aberdeen is one of the stories going around exactly. So let's move on and talk about uh, Cordian Digital Infrastructure. 
uh, ticker CORD and CCRD. This is one of the two digital infrastructure trusts that have made a pretty spectacular debut on the market, it has to be said, this year. They've had some results. Yeah, they've had some results. It's, it's clearly very early days because these were results picking up from the IPO in February to the end of September. Uh, I mean, the NAV on the ordinary share class was up uh, to 101 spot 6p, so that's moving in the right direction. But the C share, uh, which the C share hasn't been around very long, that's about 98.1p, so that hasn't moved too much. Uh, but they've declared dividends of 1.5p on both the ordinary share class and the C share class, and that was actually ahead of the guidance at the IPO. And actually, as they previously announced, the dividend target for the first financial year is now 3p compared with what they originally estimated, uh, which was 1p at the time of the IPO. But they've raised nearly £600 million, just short of that, through the IPO and the C-share issue. So that's a reasonable amount of, of capital. Uh, and obviously, it's all about getting that to work at the moment. And the manager's working on further pipeline investments. Yes, the only oddity there seems to be that, uh, I mean, they actually paid a dividend on the C-share. That's pretty unusual, isn't it? Yes, it would tend to be a little bit more unusual. I mean, it depends is, is probably the answer. I mean, if a C-share has been around for some time, it's not entirely unusual to see some kind of dividend payback, obviously, depending on the asset class. But uh, given that this is a relatively recent launch, yeah, it is a little bit more on the unusual side. Let's talk then about a much more established infrastructure trust, which is Hickel Infrastructure, ticker H-I-C-L, uh, Hickel. How are they doing by comparison? This is to the six months to the end of September. The NAV was up 3.1p in that time. And in fact, the underlying annualised portfolio return came in at 7.3%. So that was obviously positive. The fund's three largest demand-based assets performed in line with forecasts. And in fact, they paid dividends of 4.13p. And the dividend cash cover has increased a, a little bit as well. But uh, one of the kind of key takeaways is that they, they reckon that the fund is on track to deliver a fully cash-covered dividend of 8.25p for the year to the 31st of March 2022, and that's in line with the target. And the board has also reaffirmed the dividend guidance of 8.25p for the year to the 31st of March 2023. Okay, well, that lay in common with many of the infrastructure trusts is uh, trading on a premium. Uh, Let's talk about international public partnerships next. Uh, That's ticker INPP, and they've had uh, an update. They have, and this is an update from the 1st of June to the 19th of uh, November. Basically, as you might imagine, there's been quite a lot of portfolio activity. But again, on the dividend, they paid a dividend of 3.68p in November. That was in respect to the first half of uh, this year, 2021, and represented an increase of 2.7% on the previous year and in line with target. The cash dividend cover was actually one3 So they are currently maintaining the previously announced dividend targets of 7.55p and 7.74p for 2021 and 22, And that's in line with the, the current targeted annual increase of 2.5%. So they're obviously uh, still pretty confident they can deliver on those dividends. Moving on to JLEN Environmental Assets. Uh, we mentioned them before, ticker J-L-E-N. They've also had some half-year results. Half-year results to the end of September, uh, and they saw an NAV increase of 6.7% during that period. Uh, And basically, they benefited from the revision of power price forecast, which we talked about before, above forecast inflation. And also, there was a decrease in the discount rates that they use on their solar assets. Um, So the interim dividend of 1.7p has been declared. And that takes the uh, total dividends for the period to 3.4p, and that's in line with the target. Uh, and the cash dividend cover came in at one spot oh six times. But there was a bit of talk about wind and the seasonal lack of wind uh, and how that may impact dividend cover for the full year. But essentially, the kind of agri side of the business, the solar hydra and the network of CNG refueling stations, they all exceeded generation targets. But the wind is a bit of an issue. And that's a, a familiar story across the renewable energy infrastructure space. Okay, we can move on and talk about Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income, SEQI is the ticker of this one. They've had half-year results too for the same period. That's right, in which time their NAV total return was 2.8%. So the actual NAV itself just fell slightly, uh, but then obviously that dividend element kicked them back into positive territory. And the three spot 125p dividends for the period, that was actually unchanged. And the board remains committed to 6.25p dividend target on a fully cash covered basis for the current financial year. So a lot of talk about the cash generation and the manager expects that to continue to increase. 
And, uh, you know, again, some good insight in terms of the loans that they make and three of the four loans that they did have on the kind of watch list or were of high concern have materially improved. So some positive news there. So all these infrastructure trusts we've mentioned so far, that's uh, Cordian Digital, Hickel, International Public Partnerships, JLN Environmental Assets and Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income are all trading on premiums, I think. And just give us a quick snapshot, if you wouldn't mind, Simon, if you can, of what range of yields that those now represent. Uh, Because obviously it's quite interesting in this environment where uh, interest rates are are rising, or at least there's a risk of interest rates rising, and bond yields have certainly been edging up, and inflation appears to be picking up in the short term. So what kind of yield are you getting on these trusts? So on the Sequoia Economic Infrastructure, that's a a relatively higher yield, uh, 5.8%. If you look at Hickel, that's coming in at about 4.8% at the moment in international public partnerships. Uh, that's coming in at 4.5. JLEN, I've got that coming in about 6.6% at the moment. So that's certainly on the higher side as well. And in the case of Cordiant, well, that's still very early days yet. That's a 1.5p uh, yield on a 111 spot 5p. So I'm going to call that about 1%. Yeah, still early, early days for that one. So quite a range there. So that's interesting. We've got time to mention briefly a couple of property trusts. We're trying to get through within our self-imposed time deadline of not speaking to you for more than an hour. (laughs) Much fun though it is. Uh, So let's quickly uh, talk about LXI REIT, which is, I have to say, another trust that's in the uh, income portfolio, moneymakers income portfolio, and uh, has a lot of index linked property. What, uh, how have their results been? So positive, basically. These were interim results for the six months to the end of September. Uh, the EPRA NTA, so the equivalent of the NAV, was up 6.6%. That uh, related to an NAV total return of 9%. So again, quite a lot of chat about the portfolio activity, but it's a substantial size property portfolio now. It's, um, it was valued at 1.2 billion at the end of September, and that was up 4.9% on a like-for-like basis. Uh, in terms of the adjusted EPS, that came in at 3.5p, an increase from 3.3p in the previous half year, and dividends totaling 3p were declared, and that's up 13% from the previous half year, and and in line with the target dividend of 6p per share for the current financial year. And then finally, we've got time to mention Schroeder Real Estate. What's their results been like? Again, another positive set of results. So this was for the six-month period, so interim results to the end of September, in which time they saw an increase in their NAV of 9%, that uh, equated to an NAV total return of 11.3%. And in fact, the underlying property portfolio, um, the total return came in at 8.9%. So that, again, moving in the right direction. The rent collection for the half year, that uh, was 92%. Actually, it rises to 98% for the quarter to December 2021. So obviously very important in terms of how these companies are doing on their rent collection side. But uh, the dividends paid during the period totaled 1.33p, and that was up 8% over the period. Obviously, a familiar story we're seeing with a number of these listed commercial property funds, and actually a further 7.5% increase uh, has been announced with those results in terms of the dividend for the quarter to 30th of September. So that one is still trading on a discount, but uh, LXI is on a premium, I think. And on that note, I think we've, we can call it to an end this week. Been a lot of stuff to get through. Thank you, Simon. You got through it in your normal, disciplined and vigorous way. I'm very pleased about that. And uh, we we'll look forward to uh, speaking to everyone again next week. That's great. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.